I'm Xiang Zhen, the Vice President of Advisory here in Ensign Info Security. And my name is Buck. I'm a manager at Ensign Info Security and will be your host for today. Yes. Benjamin, maybe a short introduction of yourself. And I'm Ben. I'm the head of the Center of Excellence for National Security, which is a policy research think tank based at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at NTU in Singapore. Great, so we are off to a very interesting start. This podcast is directly fresh off uh, the publication of the Ensign Info Security Cyber Threat Landscape Report 2023, uh, which is our fourth edition of our annual uh, publishing. Um, I thought it's meaningful for us to kind of lay a bit of the backdrop before we go into the theme proper. So the theme for today's episode is essentially the role of public-private partnership and academia in Asia's unique threat environment. Now, to circle back to what we've actually published in our Threat Landscape Report, um, there are a few key things that we've observed across the different territories uh, that Ensign actually operates in, namely Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, South Korea, and Indonesia. Now, one of the most important things that we've observed uh, thus far essentially is uh, the spray and pray threat groups. Uh, these are largely made up by ransomware threat groups. Um, of course, we did find an outlier, which is the Lazarus Group, uh, famously associated with the North Korea regime, um, which, other than working towards financial gain, like many of the ransomware threat groups, uh, they have other interests such as information theft and espionage, as well as some elements of disruption and destruction. Now, moving forward to the more targeted threat groups that we've seen across the five territories, uh, we actually saw two threat groups, uh, Lotus Blossom and Nikon, uh, specifically targeting Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, and another interesting fact that we found out was that two Malay-speaking territories that we operate in, Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, were commonly targeted by the same threat groups. And these are Desordern, Darkpink, Nikon and Lotus Blossom. Now, one more uh, very interesting thing that we saw in this particular edition of the Threat Landscape Report was that um, the kind of vacation of the uh, Russian-associated threat groups and the filling of the void by the Chinese-associated threat groups, uh, which largely we think is associated to the fact that the Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, continues and the Russian-associated threat groups probably are spending their attentions and efforts more towards the conflict region. Now, uh, thematically, the motivations uh, that we've seen operating across the five territories largely uh, focus itself in, into information theft and espionage as well as financial gain. Um, so that being the landscape, uh, we have uh, Benjamin here. I'd like to tap into your experience and knowledge uh, working with the regions, many of the public policy uh, persons uh, that are leading our region. Uh, what other perspectives or what resonates really from the Threat Landscape Report? What alternative or other perspectives that uh, may not have been reported in, the re uh, reported in our edition of this report? And uh, any other interesting insights that you have gathered across uh, all your different conversations? Thanks a lot, Xiangzheng. And what really struck me was that the Russian threat groups are leaving the region and they're being replaced by other threat groups, for example, China. Mm. And this is very interesting because we've seen also in our look at geopolitics that the Russian cybercrime groups, many of them have aligned with the Russian state and are participating in the Russia-Ukraine war. And so it looks like their resources are definitely being diverted there. 
And it also looks like they are not immune to their own geopolitical strains since some groups have had to split because they've been like half Russian and half Ukrainian and those two halves are no longer able to work together mm. because their countries are at war. So that's something interesting to note in the geopolitical landscape. How it affects the Asian situation since that we've not really had a decrease but just the substitution mm. uh, is, remains to be seen. So that's going to be interesting if the objectives of the different cybercrime groups are still basically about the same and their targets are still basically about the same, there's still no good news for the Asian businesses. Mm. Do, do you think some of these insights are meaningful to public policy makers and how would they actually take this kind of inputs towards their you know, strategic plans, uh, designs of policy for the different jurisdictions that exist in Asia? Well, the situation in Asia is complicated because of the fact that while Russia did not have a close trading relationship with a lot of Southeast Asian countries, well, although it had with some, um, then the China has close trading relationships with many Southeast Asian countries. And it's a fine balance to see if China can help to bring down the number of cyber attacks that's originating from its territory or whether Southeast Asian countries are going to be able to make use of that trading relationship to try to get some assistance mm. in terms of getting the cyber attacks on them reduced. So one of the key focus that we have seen over the past couple of years, as well as something that we expect to uh, still be a concern for organizations in the next uh, two or three years, is ransomware. Uh, there have been some move by... Uh, uh, public policy makers in Europe uh, on how organizations are expected to handle ransomware. For example, if they want to claim uh, insurance payment for ransom or ransom, uh, ransomware-related incidents, they need to report to uh, the regulators. Do you foresee that this kind of evolution in ransomware um, to affect policy decision-making in Asia and in Singapore specifically? This is going to be challenging in Asia as well because of the ability of a lot of payments to be made off the books. And I think that we have had an uh, issue of money laundering uh, being a problem in many Asian countries. This may drive, in fact, the problem of ransomware payments underground, which is an unintended consequence. If, because actually what we, need, what we want from actually regulation like that is more knowledge and better transparency. And in some ways, uh, not just a stick, but a carrot would probably help if the policymakers are able to give assistance to ransomware victims so that they don't feel that they are being pulled in two directions. I think the developments particularly relating to ransomware has been interesting because we are also seeing many players in the ecosystem relating to ransomware response uh, take different steps at it. Uh, we've seen certain insurers and reinsurers take a particular stance to say, you know, I will not uh, support the payment of ransoms, uh, especially if they are state-sponsored in nature. Question out there, which is how do you actually finally attribute it to a state-sponsored actor? Um, we've also seen certain organizations where they take a hard stance to then say and, and publicly state it that, you know, I will not pay for any ransoms, much like how in terrorism, ransoms are made, you know, I want to align that policy. And uh, it's actually changed the way 
uh, ransomware, uh, cyber insurance uh, premiums actually play out. Are you able to share any insights about uh, what are some of the public policymakers actually thinking in response to this? Uh, For one example that I'm aware of in Singapore, and now recently discussed in ASEAN, is about the uh, ransomware response task force or a counter ransomware task force. Um, Maybe you can shed some light about those initiatives. So that's interesting because it is clear that the task force is really looking into countermeasures and that's really a key part of the what is needed by the businesses. The businesses were in a way trying to push off the risk by insuring it. I think now they as it becomes harder to insure against the risk, then it's necessary to take steps to actually be able to prevent, be able to remediate, be able to recover from ransomware attacks. And the more help that businesses can get, especially the large number of SMEs throughout the whole region who don't have the resources, don't have the training, don't have the knowledge of how to deal with a ransomware attack, then the better it will be for the all of the, the whole of the region. Mm. I think one thing that is very anecdotal in the Asia region as well as ASEAN is the very unequal uh, maturity of cybersecurity, understanding defense and uh, actions or, or, or controls in addressing some of the challenges that we clearly face. Um, part of that conversation really is about the workforce development, the talent nurturing and capacity that we have. How do we actually go towards confidence building and the approaches towards collaboratively or collective response uh, or collective defense. Uh, knowing your position uh, and exposure in the Asia and ASEAN region, um, what are some of the initiatives that you see good promise uh, in helping us go towards this collective defense and uh, more meaningful confidence building and capacity building uh, uh, outcomes? What I really like is the UN Singapore Cyber Program and the UN Singapore Cyber Fellowship. And these were initiated by the ASEAN Minister Cyber Conference, the AMCC, which is held every year at the Singapore International Cyber Week, SICW, which is just around the corner. Mm -hmm. And in one of these annual meetings, it was decided that since Singapore had developed capacity building programs for ASEAN, then the UN would also assist in this cyber capacity building programs and help to take some of the learnings from this and share it with the rest of the world as well. There's a great endorsement for what is being done in this region, really to bring together the officials from all 10 ASEAN countries to be able to basically raise their knowledge, raise their awareness, whether it's at a policy level, strategic level, or even at a technical level, that they'll be able to have a better knowledge that can defend themselves. Because in the end, it's the weakest link in the whole of ASEAN that will be the dangerous point. And the defense of one is really the defense of all. So it is not a collective defense in the sense of a NATO collective defense where you attack one and then yeah. all will come and respond. But rather that all will help to build each other's knowledge and expertise up. And I find that that's really good also in building confidence in one another. That confidence building measures so that you know that you have somebody, a counterpart in a neighboring country whom you can ask. If you see a cyber attack coming from that neighboring country, you can say, hey, I noticed that there are some 
attacks coming from an IP in your territory. Can you help me yes. to stop it? Because I can't go into your country, mm. but you've got police, you've got your own uh, authorities. Please help me to catch these guys. Mm. And that's really going to be essential in the years to come. Yeah. And I guess therein lies the need for established protocols, MOUs, and a willingness to participate in such coll collective defense efforts. Um, I like the fact that you brought up about, you know, there are dependencies across the region and uh, the word cyber supply chain uh, comes into my mind, uh, the risks involved in the cyber supply chain. Um, I'm a core member in the Geneva Dialogue, uh, which is advocating for responsible behaviours in cyberspace. And uh, I know you, uh, you are a member, contributing member as well. It's quite clear these days, organisations, businesses, individuals depend on many services and technologies that are not unique to just their native uh, location or their residential location, but extending beyond borders, extending beyond controls of nations uh, to the extent of technology, powerhouses, uh, companies, and so on. And it is also a UN uh, cyber norm goal to actually establish a cyber supply chain risk management uh, for a global effort. Um, how do you think Asia, or maybe I ask it differently, where do you think Asia is in this journey? Uh, and how do you think we can uh, move in a more positive direction towards uh, managing cyber supply chain risk management? I think a positive way to look about it is that we are starting mm. on the journey. Mm -hmm. There is an awareness. The ASEAN countries have started on this program called the Norms Implementation Checklist yes. to develop a checklist of things you need to do to implement the norms. And one of them you mentioned is the norm that the supply chain should be protected. Mm -hmm. And whether it's the software supply chain or the hardware supply chain, it is really crucial to have more capacity building so that in each member state, you're able to understand where the different elements of your supply chain are, what your interdependencies are, and so that you can then put in place the strategies to like, mitigate risk, whether it's um, bill of materials, right, bill of goods, or whether it's to um, have legislation or regulation to make sure that every party along the line has accountability mm -hmm. for the integrity of their software. Mm. So that capacity building is really crucial because not every country in the region is ready to do that. And, and, and I think therein lies the need for uh, good situation awareness and threat intelligence. Um, this year itself, Ensign uh, InfoSecurity signed up as a research sponsor for MITRE and Genetri, uh Center for Threat Informed Defense. Uh, for one purpose is really to participate in a wider group of uh, international experts in cybersecurity and also to help uh, generate public uh, good in terms of uh, the intellectual property that will be generated out of the research which will be for uh, public access uh, and really to advocate for more of these kind of uh, practices like uh, how do you actually address uh, cyber supply chain risk management and many others. But I think why, where I was going towards, uh, and, and you touched uh, that point, is that uh, the supply chain is actually very intricate and you actually need to start off with documenting and inventorizing uh, what is inside your supply chain. And it cuts across software, hardware, and I actually advocate that vendors are also part of that list. Um, and then from there, you kind of layer it on with uh, intelligence to be able to match it up with vulnerabilities that you're aware of, 
um, and also couple that with information sharing mechanisms, uh, intelligence sharing mechanisms across the ecosystem, thereby the collective defense approach um, to really be able to kind of tell your neighbor that I'm under duress and uh, maybe you can watch out for me or at least don't give me more problems <laughs> while I'm under duress. Um, so I, I think that's that's an interesting angle that I want to put forth. Um, but I'm going to go into that topic, which is I see an important trigram of relationships when it comes to collective defense. In conventional play, we see a binary field, which is, you know, there's the governments, which is the public, and then there's the privates, which is the organizations and the people that actually provide services relating towards cybersecurity. But I, I think the academy also bring an interesting lens, uh, which you are also a representative of, uh, to kind of balance uh, the different perspectives, kind of give uh, strategic uh, long-term views as well as um, with the private uh, sector as well as the public sector, some of the short-term and medium-term uh, objectives. Um, what do you have to say and in your experience working with the region? Uh, how has this played out? Is it in a good trajectory? Can we do better and what should we do more? And this is a conversation we've had many times in yes. the past, right? And I really see that there's an importance to have all three parts, all three legs of this tripod for the whole system to be stable because the public sector has the reach and has the regulatory and policy levers. The private sector has the knowledge, the skills, the resources, the expertise. And then the academia has the ability to be neutral and to take a long stand. Mm. Because for many policymakers, they have operational current needs. They have fires to fight. They have different priorities that their nation needs. Then for companies, you have your numbers to reach and you have the earnings calls to be able to deal with. And because of that tension, we see that there is sometimes a difficulty for the public sector to directly engage the private sector. That They are worried they are being sold to. Mm. But with the academia as the third leg, we are able to say, you know, let's bring you into the room together, let's convene it, and we are the neutral broker. We say, we take the long view of what, and give you that long perspective. You have to, of course, balance it with what is the current needs, but we try to create that environment where public and private can cooperate together without concerns about procurement, concerns about bottom lines. So speaking of this topic, what do you think are the more successful models uh, in the global stage of partnership between academics and public sector or academics and uh, the private sector? Um, how should we fund and how should we decide the direction of research done by academics? And uh, how should the government get involved in such partnership? I like one example which is very close to home, which is the UN Singapore Cyber Fellowship and the UN Singapore Cyber Program. And when I mentioned that we are actually doing capacity building for the whole ASEAN, the question is, who's doing this training? Because it can't just be a bunch of academics talking about theoretical things. It's so important to have experts from the private sector with real hands-on knowledge of what's happening on the ground to be able to come and provide that training. Then it's mediated by academia. The academics are able to 
mediate the program so that the government people don't are not worried that it's a sales pitch, mm. but it's actually info sharing. So I like to think that that's been working out pretty well. Mm. well one thing about information sharing, as you touch on that point, is that I, I, my personal view is that within Asia, there's a lot more informal uh, information sharing uh, approaches as compared to when we go towards uh, the West, there are more established structured protocols, the ISACs being one of the most established organization structures that are around. How do you think that plays to against our diversity of cultural uh, uh, variety within Asia? Um, and is that a good model that we should be working towards? Or, you know, maybe the world is comfortable with having several different types of models that exist. I think that actually is something we have to consider that the Asian mind is different from the European mind. Mm. And the way in which the individual certs are able to actually communicate with one another in ASEAN is actually very valuable. Mm. And do we necessarily need to create an artificial kind of environment? And they already have their combined drills. Mm. They already have their interactions. So uh, if that's working out, then I think encourage that. Then it also helps that um, we, if they are comfortable on an informal level and comfortable at many levels because it doesn't just have to be cert to cert, also mm. police force to police force. Like through Interpol. Cybercrime, through Interpol. Yeah. There are other ways to work mm. without having to always have an MOU. So at least uh, among friendly nations, we can able to co cooperate pretty well. But, but I guess the so-called Asian model requires a lot of uh, relationship reinforcement because you kind of need to know who's the other party on the other side and then you need to have relative levels of trust yes. so as to be yes. able to then say, you know, I have this piece of information I'm not going through reporting yet but maybe as an early warning I'm going to give you a heads up about this and because I trust you, see what you want to do with this. But uh, yeah, this is the piece of information. Absolutely. And trust actually is a big thing that we cannot take for granted mm. in, in Asia. Because think about it, it is a face question if you have been compromised. What Asian company wants to disclose that they have been hacked? Mm -hmm. Because other than the legal repercussions or the reputational repercussions, the face is such a big issue. Mm then the question of being threat information sharing becomes very secondary to that. I'd like to touch a, a little bit of an interesting discourse towards the fact that, uh, in my personal observation, the technology sphere is starting to kind of bifurcate. Uh, we are seeing uh, nuances of a Western technology stack and the emergence of a kind of uh, Eastern technology stack, if I, if I will, largely played out through the sanctions that the uh, technology related sanctions that are being uh, put on each other from the US and China perspectives and it's playing out meaningfully in uh, economic uh, ramifications it's playing out meaningfully uh, in terms of how businesses are starting to think about how do I architect my environment will I embrace uh, dual technology stacks Will I embrace and choose a bias on one particular technology stack for which the most part of the world has been very Western bias for the longest time. But now there is a so-called viable alternative 
uh, in the eastern stack that is emerging. I know there are recent articles to say that you know, new technology, new sem- semiconductors are now appearing from the eastern, yeah, from the uh, eastern stack. Right? How do you think that plays out in Asia, where, in my view, generally there is a preference towards uh, economic outcomes, meaning it's the value for money uh, solutions. And Western stack isn't usually uh, the most economical in nature. Um, how do you think that play out for us uh, kind of stuck in the middle, especially in ASEAN? And of course, the standard line from ASEAN countries is that don't ask us to choose. Mm. So it becomes a real difficulty at the policymaker level to say, should I take a stand for the Western stack, as you call it, or the Eastern stack? Mm. And if we look at the Singapore policy position is we will go with the stack that fits the international standards mm. or the requirements of our, our tenders. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is um, saying everything and not saying anything at all. <laughs> but in many ways, a lot of countries already have obligations that transcend questions of cybersecurity or technology. And sometimes we have to take into perspective that they have trade requirements, they have economic requirements, and they will make those decisions based on that. And the cybersecurity is one of several factors that will make that decision. Mm. Um, Maybe on the bright side, if you want to look at it, there is the possibility of having a resilient ecosystem because now you are not only having one choice, if that ever fails you, you have uh, another choice Mm. that's trying to be optimistic about it. I think you hit the nerve on uh, you hit the nail on the head right, in terms of uh, diversity of choices. And in many times when we are talking about uh, secure architecture, security engineering, we want to talk about diversity of uh, solutions, diversity of uh, sources of uh, different parts of your supply chain. But I'm reconnecting that conversation back towards the talent pool. We've invested in history, right? A lot of our people towards a particular stack, the Western stack. And then now with the emergence of the Eastern stack, you kind of have to almost choose to invest your resources wisely. Uh, Do you train the same limited talent pool on both stacks or do you kind of split them in the middle and say, you know, half of you take the Western stack, half of you take the Eastern stack. My my challenge, the way I see it, uh, being a consultant is then uh, actually it's very limited in terms of the resources that we have and how do we actually invest in our people sufficiently so that they are competent uh, and and really good in the defense uh, operation, strategic planning and the technical responses, right? So maybe if you have any thoughts around that that, that challenge that I see. It's a tough one, I have to agree. Mm. And the only consolation is that all kinds of resilience and have, involving red- having redundancies is going to be expensive. Mm. And if that's what it takes, then unfortunately, you may have to consider it as part of the process also. Because even on the Western stack, mm. different technologies go obsolete. You have to learn new ones. Yes. And if the new one is very, very different, as sometimes there are huge changes in the structure of the technology, yes. it's almost as complex as learning a different stack, so to speak. Right. So maybe they're not. Maybe it's not that different after all. But but for me, I think it's like uh, people like us. We if you ask me to learn a new language, it, it will take a, a bit of an investment. It will take a bit of a struggle, and translating between the languages that I'm 
already familiar with versus the new language that I'm trying to acquire will take a lot of uh, mental gymnastics. I think the same will go for the embracing of a diverse technology stack where you're learning uh, or, or you already have learned and invested sufficiently in one uh, particular technology stack and then now you're trying to learn the other way. And the bifurcation that I'm observing, as I call it, uh, is becoming acute in the sense that the philosophies, the uh, design, the concepts that are being applied with the Eastern stack actually do represent some paradigm shifts uh, in the way they are thinking about the architectures, the way they are thinking about how defense can be laid out and so on. And so in that contrasting field of uh, different technology stacks, then the defender actually is stuck with saying, but I've learned so much in that one t technology stack and I know how to put certain controls, lay out certain engineerings to be able to uh, hold that line. But then the west, uh, the eastern one is like, oh, actually it's a different philosophy altogether. I need to remaster That's really everything. interesting. Can you give an example of this? Because it's so, fascinating. So I think uh, in semiconductor uh, design as an example, in the western stack, we are seeing more GPU-centric uh, there's the deep uh, processing pathways. We see common shared architectures and whatnot. Uh, whereas in the Eastern stack, we're seeing uh, reprogrammable but clunky semiconductors, but being very highly competent, uh, they might burn a few more process cycles uh, to be able to achieve similar outcomes, but uh, they are highly dynamic. They can switch midway and they are more flexible and agile in the way the uh, outputs and the uh, uh, predictable pathways that they will generate the compute uh, outcomes, right? So that level of dynamism is contrasting with a more structured uh, expectation, a more consistent expectation of certain compute ar architectures that we've seen in the past. Now, even though the, the, West, the Eastern uh, architectures are not necessarily net new, but they are taking a modern look and a very deep expression of how that pathway could, could be realized. Uh, some of the foundational concepts were also born from the West in the first place. But nonetheless, they're taking a very interesting spin about it. When we look towards operating system design, many, uh, many newcomers, regardless of whether East or West, would typically look towards the open source stack. So you have your Linux mm. as an example uh, to start your base on. But the way they choose and architect the operating system would deviate quite significantly from what is the mainstream, if I were to put it, the Western uh, approaches of the uh, Linux uh, operating system. So, so these are some of the semblances that I'm observing, uh, which is quite drastic. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so that's where I think from a defender's perspective, uh, that's where some of the challenges are. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. That really sounds very challenging. Yeah. So um, I think it's an interesting conversation that we've had so far. Um, we've touched quite a few uh, topics in the range. Uh, going back to the theme, which is the role of the public-private partnership and academia in Asia's unique threat environment. We've touched the nerve about uh, what we see in the cyber threat landscape in the region. We've talked a little bit about how uh, public, private, as well as academia uh, partnerships actually come about and you've highlighted about the UN Singapore Fellowship and Partnership Programs. Uh, we've spoken a little bit about some of the geopolitical tensions that we see unique in Asia and how maybe we might not take a partisan view uh, towards how the developments are. Uh, we've spoken at length about how supply chain actually 
is so deep and wide in terms of economic, uh, geopolitical implications and how everyone has to balance their own uh, needs. And last but not least, we are, we are now touching about the bifurcation of technologies uh, that is now emerging more and more prominently due to economic sanctions and whatnot. I think in, in, in summary, this uh, touches a broad perspective of everything and I, I, I thank you for your insights and uh, viewpoints. I think this will be uh, this has actually been a very good start to our uh, podcast series, uh, which covers a broad range. And I think we will go into deeper discussions in the subsequent episodes on specific uh, areas. Thank you, Benjamin, for uh, staying with us throughout this episode. That's it for today. Until our next episode. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.